Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big question of critical physical geography. What is this emerging new field, and why is it important? My guest is Dr. Rebecca Lave, Chair of Geography at Indiana University Bloomington. We discuss why clean streams make a big difference, and I learn what the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is. So come, have a seat, and learn to listen with me. to have you here today um, about uh, critical physical geography. That is really fascinating. So one, tell us what it is. And uh, I'd also love to hear your journey of how uh, you came to be part of this new and exciting field. Yeah, well, you know, th those questions are two very much interlinked. Yeah, okay, good. So, <laughs> um, Basically, you know, I didn't encounter geography as an academic field in any detailed way until I was about to start my PhD. I knew mm. a little bit about it, but my undergraduate institution didn't have a geography program. I'd read some geography theorists for my my undergraduate thesis, but that was about it. And so I had this vision that I think many people have of geography as the original interdiscipline, which is how it started, right? It was really interested in in human environment interactions and I mistakenly thought that it still did that. Um, so I showed up at grad school all, you know, kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed saying, well, I'm going to study stream restoration and I'm going to study the physical part of it, you know, the hydrology and the fluvial geomorphology and the political economy and critical theory. And then my committee looked at me and said, mm, no, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and I, I asked questions, you know, I was, I was surprised. And so I asked questions about why. And the basic answer seemed to be, you can't possibly do that well. So you may not do that. Mm. Um, and, you know, this has been one of those moments when it was really great to be starting graduate school as a second career, right? I was 30 years old when I had this conversation and was not sort of a, a pliant, pliable young person at that point. So I smiled sweetly and then went and enrolled in hydrology and fluvial geomorphology classes. And the folks who taught those classes were, um, I think, amused that I was there, but, but very tolerant and supportive. And so I sort of put together, um, I was trying to really figure out how to put together physical science and critical social theory. And always just felt like a weirdo and, you know, got got feedback of, oh, this is a mile wide and an inch deep or this is just, you know, it's it's too broad. Um, and then I'm, I'm trying to think how much detail to go to detail to go into. But but briefly, I was at a conference a couple of years later and someone was asking about whether there were physical geographers, so people that, you know, study rivers and other things who are interested in social studies of science, so who do that kind of critical work. And someone in the audience, a very well-known geographer named Mona Domash said, oh, you mean a critical physical geographer? And then like half the people in the room pointed at me and I thought, that's it. I, I have a name. I have a label. I am a thing. It was a great moment. Um, Absolutely. And so then, you know, my goal and the goal of those of us that got this, this started was to give graduate students who wanted to do this kind of integrated work a shield that they could hold up, a name that they could give themselves. So if their committee said to them, no, you may not do this because it's just too weird, they could say, but wait, it's a thing. It's real. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting to see. 
and there is value in specialization but what is we we have lost perspective at times and that perspective is important which i i assume i'm like i'm definitely preaching to the choir with that right that's yeah. what we're talking about though yeah yeah and i think the specialization is very valuable um so i i agree with you on both those points right it, the 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 deep dives are super valuable and then having people that can bridge is also really valuable yes so the kind of bridge that that critical physical geography is 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 attempting to build is to take sort of critical social theory that's really focused on questions of of justice of inequality around race and gender and you know kind of histories of colonialism mm -hmm. and put that together with the kind of classic elements of physical geography so climate uh you know so 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 climate related things soils related things river and and geomorphology related things um, and and really to try to pull those things into conversation. Um, and to me, there are a couple of really big motivations for trying to do that. Um, one is just explanatory power. I, at least for me studying rivers, I feel like I can't possibly explain what I'm seeing at field sites unless I bring both physical and social kind of forces into play. Um, so that's one piece. Um, and then. A second piece to me has to do with how we then intervene in the world, because that's one aspect of, of critical physical geography that I haven't said anything about yet, that it has this very explicit goal of leading to social and environmental transformation. Um, so a lot of the work is very applied in trying to think about problems that communities are dealing with or, you know, just and, and to intervene in those kinds of problems. Again, you need data that's coming from multiple different perspectives, different lines of evidence so that you can make a compelling argument about how things need to change. Um, yeah. And then yeah. the last the last reason I think it's important is much more specific just to geography as a field that I feel like there are all these centrifugal forces pulling us apart as a field mm -hmm. and that we need more ways to knit ourselves back together. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so, and there, there was a moment there and I, I didn't, I normally give a little spiel at the beginning and I, and I didn't mention it this time. My goal here is just to listen and to clarify. So, uh, okay. I'm not looking for any gotcha moments. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a big thing for me, but, um, uh, so all the, everything you're saying makes a lot of sense to me as you're talking here. Um, when, how do we intervene for you? You've chosen to specialize in streams and river restoration. So kind of like waterways. Uh, can you give us like a, a test case uh, or like a, a very specific example, probably better wording um, so that people have an idea of how you analyze things and how, for, you know, so first social forces matter to geography, right? And so what does that look like for that kind of analysis? And then what, uh, how do we intervene? Can you give specific examples of that? Absolutely. So um, one of the things that I've worked on for years is the question of how marketizing the environment physically mm. affects it. And so in geography, this gets referred to as discussions around neoliberal natures, right? The idea that the, that the best approach to any problem is to convert it into a market and then let market forces sort it out. So this is behind the idea of carbon credits, for example. Um, 
as, as an approach to an environmental problem, that you let people buy and sell credits for particular kinds of pollution and that that's the easiest way to solve that pollution problem rather than having some form of governmental regulation that says, no, don't emit. How are we doing so far? Tracking. Yeah. Okay, good. So, so critical, the critical human geography and critical social theory says, gee, we're pretty sure that putting a price tag on nature is a bad idea. But there are very, very few studies that have looked at its biophysical impacts. So I spent a whole lot of years working with uh, a geomorphologist named Martin Doyle and a political ecologist named Morgan Robertson. The three of us worked together starting in 2006, um, trying to figure out what happens in the U.S. market under the Clean Water Act Mm. um, for stream mitigation. So this is the idea that um, under the Clean Water Act, Section 404, you're not supposed to damage waterways of the U.S. unless you get a permit from the Army Corps of Engineers to do so. And the Army Corps of Engineers is supposed to say, gee, can you move the project so it doesn't impact the stream? If you can't do that, can you minimize the impact? Last resort is, gee, you can't move the project. You can't minimize the impact. You can pay to offset the impacts that you can't avoid through what's called compensatory mitigation. Hmm. In about the 1998, this got turned into a kind of formal approach known as stream mitigation banking, where if you're a developer and you have an inconveniently located stream in the land where you want to put a parking lot, you really need to put it in a pipe, which is going to ecologically kill it. The Army Corps will now say, okay, if you're if you're going to do that, then what you need to do is write a check to someone who has restored a comparable stream somewhere else. And that way you can go ahead with development. And it's a way of balancing the trade off between development and environment. <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's such a weird solution. It sounds like. um uh, it sounds like uh, like Catholicism during like Martin Luther's time with the indulgences. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly how I describe it. Okay, that makes me feel better. I'm like, it's like I'm coming yeah. across as like a theology nerd here, but I'm like, <laughs> so oh strange. no, that's what it. Yeah, that's very much what it feels like. And I will say that my colleague Morgan Robertson, who's one of the people I work with, who's mm-hmm. much more into the policy nuances than I am, mm-hmm. has several reasons why he thinks it's not an exact match. Sure. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, it sure looks like an indulgence to me. Sure. Um, got you. Uh, and so uh, what are some of the impacts? Like when you say uh, putting a stream into a, a tunnel kills it. What? Why? Like, I didn't why? know that. I can I can see it a little bit, but I, I'm sure there's like several effects that matter here. Yeah. So, so one of it is to just just think about kind of the basics of ecology on this planet, and that that um, all of our all of our energy comes from the sun ultimately. So, if you have a stream that is in a pipe underground for several miles and not exposed to sunlight during that time, it's getting some energy in the form of like leaf, leaves and things from upstream washing through it, but nothing's getting added in that section. There's no plants alongside the the bank that can add leaves and other nutrients in, right? There's nothing washing in from the watershed next to it. It's just, it's only getting what's coming upstream and nothing, nothing much lives there. So 
I may be exaggerating a little bit to say that it kills the stream, but it sure makes it very difficult for anything to live there. And you're not going to find like large populations of fish or things like that. If that makes sense to you. Gotcha. So when you say like, so why do streams need sun? I mean, so you're not going to have fish in that, that stream. And obviously you're going to have even fish that go through the tunnel. They're not going to stay in the tunnel. So you just have, basically, it's literally just dead space for that, uh, for that tunnel. And on either side, I'd assume, right? Like fish that go through, if it's several miles, they probably die. You know, I think it probably depends on the fish. And I, I should just say like, like stream ecology, really not my thing. Okay. Like I'm much more comfortable <laughs> talking about the physics here. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> so, okay. so any ecologist listening to this is going to be going, ah, Wince, no, what did she just say? But I think it's, it's, it's just really important to, to think about the fact that streams, um, streams are really connected to the landscapes around them. You know, they're not like a water slide chute that's just, you know, a nice little concrete thing that we ride on on a map, right? They, they have all these ties outwards that are along the banks and things of, of ties with their floodplains in terms of vegetation and flow of nutrients and movement of critters back and forth between the stream and the bank and things along those lines. So when you put something in a pipe, it loses all of those connections. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the only, like, I have a couple touchstones here, you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Little Big Farm, the, the no. documentary, um, but another one, and this is just like, I think it's some random National Geographic video. Um, I homeschool, so I'm often <laughs> digging through this kind of stuff. Uh, they talked about reintroducing wolves to, I believe, um, the upper part to Yellowstone, and it literally changed the course of a river. And so to me, like, I, I understand a little bit what you're talking about. Uh, do you know a little bit more about that example? Or do you have examples like that of where you have these, like, the interplay of the different, you know, ecosystems? Well, you know, I think you could. So that one's a really famous example because it's talking about just just changing uh, predator-prey relations, affecting things physically. But there are so many environmental ties between streams and what happens around them. Um, another one that I love is that uh, forests alongside rivers where there are salmon are fertilized by salmon. Like if you examine the isotopes of the tree, like you examine the trees, you'll find salmon inner, like I, again, I don't, not yeah. a chemist. I, gotcha. So I'm going to get this wrong too. But you're gonna you'll find like signatures of salmon like hundreds of yards from the stream because mm. bears catch the salmon, drag them into the woods, and eat them. So the salmon are fertilizing things way outside the immediate floodplain, which is remarkable. So there are all kinds of ties like that. Yeah, and there's there's a real uh, you know this is where we get into the critical uh, side of what you're talking about because um, uh, my background's in hermeneutics, so when we talk about like. Uh, my my way of talking about like Heidegger's critiques and Gadamer's critiques are like we have a language of boxes, right? That's very like the capitalist mindset is like, well, we just we can count things if we put them into boxes, but we don't think about the interrelationship between things. So, for yep. instance, trees with salmon uh, in them, whatever that is chemically, uh, probably have different properties in the same way that we know that animals eating grain or animals eating grass have different properties. It's not that uh, you could eat grain-fed beef and you, you're going to have certain effects in your body. Same with grass. And so if there's an interplay between the salmon and the trees, we don't know what that effect is. And so uh, 
I'm just trying to track with you here. I don't know. Am I, am I on the right track? Is that the critical part of it? No. So let me, let me, go let ahead. me go. A little, but th- your point about relationality is right on, but I'm thinking about a different set of relations. Absolutely. So, so yeah. So, so in that project th- that I was talking about before, the point of our analysis of stream mitigation banking was to say, okay, if you let people put this stream in a pipe, as long as this other stream over here is restored, what happens to that other stream over there that's restored? Like, is there a physical signature on the landscape of this market process? Mm. So, you know, we spent a lot of time looking at that, trying to say, like, could you tell the difference physically between streams that are restored for profit as part of mitigation banking or streams that are restored for other reasons under other funding sources? Like, could you see a difference? So to me, the critical was about What's the impact of this move towards solving our problems through markets? What is the physical impact of that? And, you know, we were working very particularly in North Carolina, which is where the earliest stream mitigation markets were created. And um, also one of the areas in the U.S. with the longest histories of stream restoration. And um, it, so, so some of our findings are particular to that. but But. What I'll just say, what we found is that the really important thing is the metrics that are required of the people that are doing the restoration. So, so if you want to provide, so, so I should just take one step back. So we got as far as the person, the developer with the inconveniently located stream they want to put in a pipe. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they go for their permit hearing with the Army Corps of Engineers. The Army Corps of Engineers says, okay, you can do this as long as you buy stream credits that are equivalent to the damage you're doing. The stream credits are produced mostly by for-profit companies that purchase usually conservation easements, but access to land with degraded streams on it. And they restore those streams to produce the stream credits. Okay. So what what the mitigation bankers who produce the stream credits, they get required to follow particular kinds of practices to to hit particular kinds of outcomes um, legally in order for them to be able to sell credits. What we found is that the mitigation bankers are really good at producing exactly what they're told to produce and nothing more. Right. Right. So what they're told to produce in most of the U.S. is a particular form of a channel and some things about the planting alongside it, which is riparian vegetation. But they don't have any targets they have to meet about water quality, about the ecology of the stream, nothing along those lines. Um, and there are some good reasons about that I can explain if you're curious about sure. why that is the case. But, but the key thing is that's all we get out of it. So we don't get an equivalent to the stream that got put in the pipe. But the metrics and the things, the success criteria that bankers are held to turns out to be super important. Well, I am curious. Uh, so please continue when you're when you're talking about um, and I can't word it exactly the way you did. So I'll, I'll let you I'll let you continue. Okay, but yeah, sure. So the reason why uh, it's it's been until very recently in the U.S. rare to ask any mitigation banker to address biological or chemical criteria is you need to imagine uh, 
the network of a river in a watershed. And I always use my arm to do that in talks. So you can just, it's not great, but it sort of works. So if you kind of hold your hand up in front of yourself and you can imagine that your fingers are tributaries coming into a main stem of a stream, you could do the best restoration project possible right around your wrist. And if someone does something dumb at your pinky, it will wash through and wipe out all the good you did in the project. Right. So there's a sense that because because rivers, I mean, I've said it before, because rivers integrate their watershed, because they're at the mercy of everything upstream, it's not fair to impose constraints around water chemistry or aquatic ecology. But if you don't, you don't get what you want. And so a lot of what I've been thinking about is like, how do you do that? differently? Is there a way to continue using market forces to get the restoration done, but that gets us the restoration we want? Uh, it, so immediately, and I, I, I know you've thought about this, it does seem like you would put more value on upstream, right? Would that, that would be more credits or whatever, because <laughs> it's going to affect everything coming down. Is that part of the current system? It's not. Um, so, so the current system doesn't give differential credit based on where, where in a drainage network your project is. So that would be something to think about. Another thing to think about would be, could you do work outside of the stream channel mm. that um, helps restore what's washing into the channel in the first place? So if you're thinking about nutrient pollution, for example, things along those lines, there's just a bunch of stuff that you could bunch of ways you could think about doing mitigation differently. And so, and we've been talking about like streams, uh, what are the effects when this stuff happens, uh, obviously upstream and then comes down to rivers? So, so, um, you know, an example that all that I heard about from a mitigation banker was, you know, he did this restoration project he was really proud of. And then a neighbor upstream let, let his cows out. And so all of a sudden through this tributary comes this gigantic pulse of sediment that the cows have dug up as they're digging around, but also cow poop, cow urine, lots and lots of nutrients, right? Cows, as, you know, as they will, right? So, so it basically really upset the water chemistry and in his site and did a bunch of not great stuff. Hmm. Um, so eventually that runs through his site and then down to wherever, you know, into whatever river system his site connects into. So the idea could be that you could think about tackling entire watersheds or catchment basins in the headwaters to try to address the causes of problems um, rather than trying to put a Band-Aid on the effects farther down the drainage network, if that makes sense to you. So let's say that we don't do this stream mitigation at all. What, what is, what's the doomsday scenario for a river? Yeah. So... I guess what I'd say is I wouldn't call it a doomsday scenario. And this is, this is something how, this is something where I um, disagree uh, with my, my long-term collaborator, Martin Doyle. So he's the person I've worked with the closely, the most closely um, all these years. And, you know, he's a much, he's much more pro-capitalism than I am. Um, I, I tend to think, well, gee, what if we didn't harm the stream in the first place, necessitating the mitigation. Like, what if we just said mm, no, right? So, so that then makes development really complicated, right? It means that we would have to change our development patterns to really concentrate in areas where we already have development or where there's been development in the past, rather than 
spreading out the way we do and affecting new systems. Uh, so to me, it's, it's not necessarily a doomsday scenario to get rid of mitigation. It would, but it would require us to really think how the trade-offs we allow between environment and development. Uh, yeah. One good answer. That's really, I, I appreciate that. I, uh, to clarify my question, when I said uh, the doomsday scenario, I mean, if we didn't replace it and we just let people mess up streams without, what would that do to rivers? So if we didn't- My apologies. No, no, no worries. That, that, that was also interesting. So, I mean, no harm, no foul. Yep. Um, so in a way, we already know what that looks like because it's what our streams and rivers look like before the passage of the amended Clean Water Act in 1972, right? So really, really high levels of pollution coming from point sources, factories, but also non-point sources from agricultural fields. We still have the non-point source pollution, which is why we have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Hmm. Um, and I can explain that in a minute if you like, but um, the we would, we would still have point source pollution coming in. So um, probably most of your, I well, I have no idea the age profile of your listeners, but they may not be old enough to remember when it was totally unsafe to swim in a river in pretty much any city in the U.S. Um, you know, when, when I grew up, if you, if, it, you know, I, there, there are all these legendary stories of, of falling into the Charles River in Boston, for example, and having to do like a two-week course of antibiotics if you happen to do that, right? Whereas now it's this place where people, you know, learn to sail and there's rowing and all kinds of things in there, right? So, so we already know what a difference the Clean Water Act made. Uh, look, right? so, we do not have rivers on fire. Yes. Example. I was about to ask about uh, the Thames, right? Like the the, caught, the river caught on fire. Um, and the Cuyahoga in Ohio, multiple times. Like everybody thinks it was just that one time when it was in Life magazine. But it, in fact, I think it happened like 12 or 14 times. Oh, uh, yeah. so and this also, you know, I, it's odd that I'd have a fond memory of this, but you've just helped explain, um, I, you know, I come from a New England family. So uh, the Standells. Uh, love that dirty water, which the Red Sox play every time they have a home game. I now understand. Love that dirty water. That would obviously be from before my time. And that's why they sang that. Um, definitely makes that song considerably sadder. But <laughs> um, OK, that that's uh, there you go. That's the definite like when you talk about and I'm, uh, you said you were going to mention the the dead zone in the Gulf. When we talk about like these doomsday scenarios, um, obviously, uh, another touchstone for me is the uh, hooker factory polluting love canal all right like i mean and that was very like i mean that's that's not antibiotics that was cancer throughout an entire community so uh this is so <laughs> obviously important and uh um but yes explain the dead zone in the, in the gulf please yeah well so the Clean Water Act was only able to be passed, like the kind of political horse trading that got it through, if it um, mostly exempted what's called non-point source pollution, which is the kind of pollution that like runs off from an entire farm field as opposed to coming out of a pipe. And so we have a little bit of regulation on water quality impacts from agriculture, but not very much at all. Um, and so then what we... Go ahead. Yeah, just, I just wanted to say... Uh... For our listeners, because I, I, I want to make sure I understand this. So point pollution is like it comes from a single point and non-point is it's just that general runoff. Uh, maybe yep. everyone else understood that, but I like that was a light bulb moment for me. OK, sorry. Yeah, good. 
you know, you think about it like like imagine imagine um like rain falling and washing along an agricultural field that is bordered by a stream. Right. And you know, often it's going to be bordered by a stream because any stream that ran through the middle got put on the edge to get it out of the way so it was much easier to plow and plant all those things, right? And how would so, you measure that, right? Versus on um, the single point. I under, okay, sorry. So it's, it's, it's a lot messier, right? It's a lot and it's a lot more difficult to regulate. If it's a pipe, you can imagine putting some kind of filtering technology either in that pipe or in the input of that pipe. But if you're talking about the entire edge of a, of a thousand acre field, how do you think about that? Right. That's really hard to do. Um, so so what we have then is the Mississippi Basin, which covers, I want to say, I might get this wrong, but 31, it has parts in 31 states in the U.S. and a little bit of Canada. It's a mm. major part of the continental U.S., all lots of which is agricultural because it includes most of the Midwest, right? right? And so you get lots and lots of nutrient pollution and then also pesticides and things like that getting washed down. But what causes the dead zone in particular is the nutrients because they get washed out of the Mississippi River, shot out into the Gulf, and they cause lots and lots of, of algae and things to, to happily grow. When those things die, they sink to the bottom and decompose, and the decomposition process takes all of the oxygen out of the water column. So what they mean by a dead zone is like living things die because there's no oxygen in the water. The fish can't breathe because they pull oxygen from water. So you literally like... Um... Do, the, do fish avoid it or do they swim in and die? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I've always assumed that anything that can get out of the way does because nobody likes the feeling of suffocating. But you can imagine that there are lots of critters that are too small to move because it, it's, it's, it's very, very large in size. And it varies year to year. Um, but it's still, it's, it's big enough that I find it hard to imagine like shrimp getting out of it, right? And yes. certainly if you're a shellfish, your toast. Yes. <laughs> um, so and I, so I currently live in central Florida. So, and, and thank you for your patience. This has been fascinating. Um, red tide obviously comes to mind. I'm assuming, I know that comes from agricultural runoff. Um, yep. uh, we're having problems with our water table because of all the pesticides and things and the continued use of water to grow things that probably aren't suited for here. Um, do you talk about, do you deal with water tables at all? Or is that mainly as it relates to streams? So, so it's really not something that I have worked on much. Gotcha. I, I, I can. Yeah. 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 No, not no. I like, yeah. I obviously, you, you, uh, not to echo your, uh, PhD committee who tried to shut you down, but you're like, you're broad enough, right? You don't need to include water tables, but I'm just like, I'm like, uh, it's it's fascinating how widespread this is. What would be some alternatives to these credits then? So uh, how effective do you find these credits to be? Obviously, those metrics uh, need to be better, but it's difficult to say how. Um, so how effective do you see the, these credits being? And what are the alternatives besides just regulation? Is it is it just regulation or in credits or is there any other options? Yeah, so. As I said, you know, I'm not great on the chem the water chemistry and aquatic ecology, but the people that have studied these projects have found very little improvement. And the way the clean water talks about it, the language it uses is ecological lift. So what we find from those restoration projects is very little ecological lift. 
There are some kinds of restoration projects that seem to do better. So for example, dam removals have a really good track record in terms of particularly improving um, uh, the the biodiversity and the presence of different species. When you remove barriers that stop things from moving up and down stream, it's had some great impacts. So um, you can find really cool examples of this in the Northeast, like in uh, removals of dams on the um, Penobscot River in Maine, I think is the name of it. Also, you can find some really amazing examples in Washington State with the removal of the Elwha dams in the Olympic Peninsula. They're just some of the most inspiring stories I know um, in terms of improvements from a kind of attempt at restoration of a stream. Um, so there are some techniques that work better. So I think that we could. We could argue, we, we could change mitigation banking to prioritize techniques that are more effective. Um, and then another thing that we could do, um, and this is something that, that my colleague Martin Doyle and I have thought about a lot, and we've suggested that we could, we could take mitigation banking in one of two very different directions. So first, we could really try maximizing human control. We could say, you know, when we only try to do one thing, we can pull that off. So we could say, all right, if you're going to put this stream over here in a pipe, the characteristic of that stream that we care about the most was the fact that it did some really good work at removing excess nutrients from the water, denitrification. Okay. So when you do your project that is compensating or offsetting that loss through stream mitigation, you need to focus only on denitrification. That might not look much like a normal stream. Right. That might involve like, you know, some kind of rubber lined riffle where you get the water to go under, you know, to go lower into the hyperreic zone. Don't worry about like the, the, the exchange with groundwater zone for a longer time to pull more nutrients out of the water column. Right. It might look something like that. Therefore, it would not necessarily look like what you would want to show up and trout fish in. And it might not have any fish. Right. But it would do its job. So we would know we wouldn't get much out of the mitigation process, but we would get something. Right. So that's a kind of low risk, low gain approach. The other way to go, and I think this is the one, honestly, that Martin and I both like feel more called to is to maximize complexity and say, all right, we're not going to try to create this perfect channel form. We're going to get out of the way, let the stream be the stream. It's going to be messy. It might get us really great stuff or it might not. Like it's hard to say. But it, it gives the stream back some self-determination and it has the potential of much more benefit in terms of kind of water quality improvements and aquatic ecology. So it's a high risk, high reward strategy. Right. Because so we're encouraged. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, go so uh, because what we often we see dramatic results when nature is able to take over, like like Yellowstone reintroducing some old elements. But the 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 this is the high risk part, right? You let the stream do its thing, and then someone upstream does something, and it just like it, you you get nothing out of that that pres that preserved stream, right? Well, that would be the real risk because if the stream is left alone, it should do what it should like it needs to do. But if you have that upstream pollution, then you literally are just a like all you've done is lost you know a stream to a pipe to put it yeah yeah or. Or it might not even be pollution, right? Imagine going back to the arm, your, my arm is a watershed. 
imagine that 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 uh, the land up around my fingers, the tributaries, was all forested previously, mm-hmm. and then somebody buys it, clear cuts it, and put it puts in houses. Right, the amount of water and sediment that's going to be coming through is going to really, really change. Right. So again, that could cause problems. So there there are a lot of things that could cause problems. Climate change could cause problems. There could be all kinds of things, right? So, so it, it, it is risky, but it seemed to us oh, of course, to like, have a much better potential. Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's so complex. Yeah, like even like I'm it thinking is. about the, the heat bubble on over the Northwest would have that. I mean, that lasted for like six weeks of like hundred degree weather or something like that, right? Um, and the, I, I'm assuming that had tremendous impact on local streams, right? Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, I, there's and not a lot can you can do. what survive in them? Right, right. Like uh, your, your tax credits aren't going to do much to dent that, right? Like that's a, a tremendous, uh, has tremendous impact. Um, going back, if you don't mind, uh, how do dams hurt? I, I never even considered that. How do dams hurt the environment? That's a great question. Because, you know, on the one hand, Dams are something many people are embrace, embracing right now as a form of, of clean energy. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so here's what happens. You know, a river system is, is connected. So rivers are upstream and downstream. There's movement of nutrients and critters and all kinds of things. So you put a dam in place. It does a couple big things. So first of all, it turns a whole section of river and its floodplain into a lake. So it changes that. And if you are in a tropical area where there's lots and lots of trees and biomass, it can then, as those things decompose, create a whole lot of methane, which, of course, is not great about climate change, right? So, so people are trying to figure out how to make dams and hydroelectric in tropical areas be less damaging to the climate. So that's one way of thinking about it. But another way of thinking about it is that now populations upstream and downstream are cut off from each other. So if you were if you happen to be uh, a salmon or some kind of fish that migrates and you were upstream of that dam, you can't get down. And if you were a salmon out spawning, you can't get back up to where you want to lay your eggs. Which so means that's a big problem. You, you won't end up uh, procreating at you all. You will die. Yes. Without, without procreating. Right. So you're yes. going to. Yeah. Which, of course, that makes sense. It's not like they can go over the, the wall. So. Yeah. So then the other thing, and, it, you know, we're talking, it depends on the size of the dam, right? If like, if it's a, if it's like a beaver dam or something that's really low in the water, many fish can jump that or get through it, right? So there, there, it's not, it, imagine something larger and concrete. Yeah. yeah. So, so well, and the there's complexity, that. Then, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, and the, the complexity of this too, is like, you're talking about there's tropical. And then like, when you're talking about salmon, that's a specific ecosystem. Every ecosystem has its own share of challenges, right? Like exactly. So then the other thing to think about are the physical impacts, because instead of so, so so here's, you know, there's the river coming into the dam and stopping at that lake. And then we don't let exactly that amount of water out the bottom of the dam. Right. We hold the water in the dam so that we can create power on the schedule that we want to create the power. Right. Which means that then the the the, the range of water flows in the channel downstream is different. Typically, it's lower. There's less water. Um, and then also, and here's, here's a kind of funky thing to think about. Rivers have a lot of kinetic energy. Yeah, so they're holding up sediment and rock particles and things as they go. And then they get to the area behind the dam, which is a lake, and it's the water 
slows down and the sediment drops. So then the water that gets released from the dam isn't carrying anything with it. And it's what gets called hungry water. Okay, which means that it, it has lots of kinetic energy and nothing not, that's not carrying anything. So it scours out the river channel below the dam. So quite a ways below the dam, you get these kind of like bare rock or super eroded channels because the water is picking up more stuff there than it would when it, if the dam wasn't there and it was flowing through with the sediment load it already had. So very similar to, uh, I do most of the cooking at home. So this is where my mind jumps. Yep. But uh you throw salt into water when you do pasta, and obviously you don't want to do this much salt, but you could put enough salt in there that it would overload the water, right? And the less salt you have in there, the more e the easier it is for the water to pick it up. So when the sediment drops out, that's what we're talking about, right? The, the water has increased capacity to pick up more sediment when it comes out. Yes. Got it. Okay. So that has all kinds of impacts too. From a nutrient um, standpoint, right? right? For the plants alongside. And also, I mean, getting to your water table point, yeah, right. If you, if a stream get erodes way down below the floodplain adjacent to it, mm -hmm. then it's hard for the plants and the floodplain. It's hard for their roots to tap into the water table, and they're more likely to die. So you get these kind of dead zone. The dead zones is the wrong word to use because I just use it in relation to the Gulf. But you get these like super dried out, desiccated areas on the floodplain that are now way high above the channel so that the roots of plants can't get to the water. So um, I want to make sure I'm, I'm following. I, I think I lost you. At one, yeah. So because the channel, because it cuts deeper down with the channel, the flood table drops or the, the water, water table, table drops. drops. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Which of course, and so the plants can't reach down. All right. For some reason, I, I <laughs> think that's exactly what yep. you just said, but I'm just tracking with it. That is fascinating. No yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's so complex. <laughs> so good. It is, and it's also really hard to explain without being able to draw. Yes. <laughs> I say, like, I'm, no, I'm very I'm, impressed. I'm, <laughs> you have I'm great crying point. inside with the need for a whiteboard and a pen right now. Yes. No, I, I am, uh, you know, and uh, I think uh, the word pictures help, but the... Uh, yeah, you've done a great job explaining it. This is this is really fascinating. It's obviously very important, right? Um, uh, I you know I think about my life, but I think about I, I have two kids, one on the way, and so like that's very <laughs> like I want to leave them you know rivers they can swim in without you know doing a uh, having to wear like a flame retardant suit or having to do a two week antibiotic plan afterwards. Um, much yeah. less what you have to drink, you know, as, as that becomes a you know. I think about in the U.S., we take clean water for granted, but uh, and we have a lot of benefit from like the Great Lakes and the the rivers and stuff like that. But that is, that can quickly become a real issue if we don't handle this. Um, yeah. So go ahead. I was wondering this. This is changing focus a little bit, but I was sure. wondering if I could give you a couple of other examples that aren't related to rivers of of how a kind of critical physical geography approach can help you see an environmental pro problem differently. That'd be wonderful. Is that all right? I, yeah, yeah. I think I might have just derailed you. Oh no, no, that's is great. Yeah, yeah. I my mine. Uh, I'd love to at the end talk about uh, more about the solutions because, but that that sits better at the end anyway. So please tell us more examples. Uh, that would be great. Yeah. So um, one example that I really love comes from my colleague, um, who's Dr. Nubia Beret Armand, who is, a, is an urban climatologist. Um, and so she did this, she, she started thinking about homelessness 
um, and how homeless folks are affected by changing climates. Um, and she looked at the literature that's available about that. And first of all, it's almost all focused in the global north. Um, it's almost all talking about how homelessness is a result of, of addiction or psychological issues for the most part. And it's almost all talking about the climate risk to homeless people being from extreme events and particularly extreme cold. Okay, so not so applicable in Rio de Janeiro, which is where she lives and does her fieldwork. So she um, started doing fieldwork there, and that fieldwork consisted of a bunch of stuff about kind of temperature measurements and, and how water drains through the city and things along those lines. But she also talked with homeless advocates and ho former homeless people to try to get a sense of what the actual issues were. So that combination of physical science and social science research, I think, is super useful. Um, so what she discovered is that homeless people in Rio are mostly homeless because of poverty. And so it is extremely important to them that they stay in parts of the city where they can earn small amounts of money helping shopkeepers or begging, right, things along those lines, which means that they're effectively economically trapped in the downtown areas and other areas that are very built up. And it turns out that the temperatures there on an everyday basis in their summer are outrageously high. Like she, she, she was uh, finding surface temperatures of like 87 degrees centigrade, which is, I mean, I can't do the math in my head fast, but like 168 degrees Fahrenheit. Like think about what it means for the ground to be that hot. And that's a consistent thing for them. So for, so what she found was that for homeless people, so here's this big kind of justice issue that for homeless people, the issue was access to drinking water and, you know, temperatures that could be uh, fatal for them on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So that's an example of, of work, you know, so you could imagine just doing the study that says here are temperatures in downtown Rio, gee, homeless people really should move out of there. Uh, so 80 degrees centigrade to Fahrenheit is 176. So yeah, so it's <laughs> high. Yeah. It's crazy high to imagine the ground. I mean, you're, you know, imagine a street, right? Asphalt. So it's, it's, it's yeah. Oh, it it's makes really total sense. I, I mean, yeah. even in Florida, which is, I don't think gets as hot. Like, I mean, you step out, like you could throw an egg on the pavement and it will, yeah, you'll cook it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so that's an example of a study that to me is, is kind of a critical environmental science, right? That's thinking about justice issues um, and, and how that fits with, with changing patterns of climate. Another example would be um, Dr. Tiana Bruno, who is at the University of Texas at Austin, who, who works on the biophysical afterlife of slavery. So she is doing a combination. Uh, she works in Port Arthur, Texas, which you may know is a big industrial uh, city right on the Gulf, lots of petrochemical stuff. Um, and she's doing a combination of like oral histories and different social sources, but she's also coring trees. And it turns out that trees, because, you know, because they, 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 uh, they, they take in chemicals in the air. So you can see legacies of pollution in the tree rings. So she's doing that chemical analysis to be able to look at, you know, kind of legacies of, of toxics and pollutions in a community that's predominantly African-American with these oral histories. So she's she's using kind of biophysical evidence to document environmental racism. Mm. So it's very powerful stuff. 
Yes. And, and even as this has come up a couple times with what you just said, and this is something that's uh, both fascinating and just very important um, with what I, I wish to accomplish with this uh, podcast is that uh, we do tend to prioritize certain forms of truth. And, and, and it's hard to avoid um, that what's written gets more credence than what is spoken because, and so by documenting these oral histories, we are giving voice to very important things. Um, so yeah, like the, the fact that the oral history comes up a lot um, uh, is something that has been mentioned before on this podcast, but it's, it's so, so essential. Yeah. Yeah. That, I those agree. are great examples. And it's also, it's a really important way of, of, to me, looking at the, the politics of knowledge production. So, right. you know, here I am, I have a PhD, I'm white, I'm older. So I have all this credibility behind that kind of research that I do. Um, but I don't think that I, you know, why do I want to do research? It's because I don't understand something and I'm not the expert in it, right? I want to learn more. And I think it's so important, especially when you're dealing with environmental issues to to honor and learn from the knowledge of communities that are living with problems because they know so much um, and they have, you know, they just have so much that they can bring to any analysis of the project. And that's one of the things that I really like about both uh, Nubia Bere Armand's work and Tiana Bruno's work, that they're, they're learning from the community that they're, that they're studying to better understand what's going on in terms of uh, an environmental problem. Rather than saying, oh, yes, I am the expert scientist. I will tell you what's going on. I, I'm so proud that I remembered the name, but I wanted to make sure I got it right. Are you familiar with the Ethics of, in, of Invention by uh, Sheila Jasanoff? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, you're, some of the stuff that you're talking about, you know, because the people who suffer the most from these kind of pollu pollution tend to be the poor, who are in turn the people who are less likely. I mean, it takes time to write things down, right? And it takes time to research things, and uh, it takes money to uh, to push that research out. And so, uh, you know, it, it's that's uh, obviously I, I thought of that, um, and I, definitely at the end, I would love um, for any list of books or articles or websites that you'd recommend if people want to learn more about this. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah, you've been very gracious and. Uh, incredibly important topic. You've done a great job explaining it. Even without the whiteboard, I, I do feel your pain. Um, so as we talk about uh, solutions, there's, there's the credits. There's different ways of doing credits, which you, you've mentioned. Um, what are, if we were to move more in a regulatory route, what would you recommend there? How would, what would be the benefits? What would be the trade-offs? Yeah. So a regulatory route would be something along the lines of how the Endangered Species Act used to be enforced, which was more of a thou shalt not, right? It said, you know, if we put something on the Endangered Species Act, you are not killing individuals of that species. You are not taking their habitat, right? All these things. And, you know, if you have, have read anything about environmental contact, uh, conflicts in the U.S. over the last 50 years, that's caused a lot of upset because people who thought they could develop their property in particular ways found out that they couldn't. Right. So, so, you know, there's, um, after they buy it, uh, say, say again, I would say after they buy it, which is why they're like, they buy it with that intention. And then all of a sudden they discover. Yeah. 
that they can't use it, right? And so that leads to that whole, um, I think, really, really awful, uh, unproductive idea that there's a trade-off between environmental protection and jobs and economic development. I do think it's, we have to figure out how to balance them. Um, but I do believe it's possible. Like we can, we can encourage jobs and development in ways that uh, concentrate in areas that we have already ecologically harmed, for example, so that we don't uh, spread that outwards um, and don't create new impacts, right? There's a bunch, of, I think there's a bunch of things we could do, but boy, would it be tough, right? The Environmental Protection Agency is not a powerful agency. Its budget has dropped under every president since I want to say George W. Bush. For sure, it continued to drop during the Obama administration. It's not a Democrat versus Republican thing of who puts the budget down, who puts it up. It's just been going down because people don't like being told, no, they can't do something because what? of environmental reasons, right? That's not very popular. Um on the other hand, you know, uh, everybody I know loves the fact that the environment around them is cleaner, that they can hunt and fish safely, right? I mean, that's a big part of my family's life, um, right? So, so people, there's strong constituencies behind environmental protection. It's just figuring out how to handle the cases where there are big environmental, like economic impacts and how to do those in a sane way. Um, yeah. So. Well, yeah. I mean, and similar, you know, even if you're not into hunting and fishing, um, clean water near your house makes a difference, right? I mean, nobody wants what happened with uh, Love Canal to happen near them, um, whether that's for your kids or for just yourself if you don't have kids. Um, uh, <laughs> people don't like cancer, last I checked. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, the example to me, and this is... Uh, you know, instead of water, if we talk about air, you know, you talk about what's happened in some cities, but especially like you see what happens in China, like they literally have days where they tell people you cannot go outside because it will harm your lungs. Um, that's uh, definitely a doomsday scenario, right? If you like, and they're, they're trying to mitigate that now, but um, that, that's, that's drastic, right? Like that's literally, you're going to make something uninhabitable. Um, and yeah. that's uh, yeah, obviously from a climate change standpoint, that's what we're hoping to <laughs> stop globally. Avoid. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, uh, even on these uh, local levels, you can create this for yourself. Um, so definitely important. Um, what are some resources people want to learn more about this that you would recommend? Or did you have something else you wanted to add? Well, I was just going to say quickly in response to your your air quality example, right? The reason why we don't have that in the U.S. is the Clean Air Act, right. which was incredibly effective, right? I can still remember trying to do PE class when I was, uh, you know, uh, in elementary school and um, having a hard time breathing when I was running. It hurt to breathe. Um, and that's just not often a problem anymore. Um, so I, where I was think that? If you don't mind my asking, in, it was in Southern California. Oh, wow. So we, we would get smog from LA and it would be hard to breathe. The air pollution was disgusting. Um, and it's so much, I mean, there's still bad days, but it's so, and you know, we get wildfire smoke, all those things. I don't live there anymore, but you know, there's still those kinds of issues, but generally it's so much better. Okay. So, you know, I would love to see the environmental regulation we have get more credit for how much, <laughs> how yeah. many great things it's done for us. I think that people maybe. Um, kind of undervalue how much pr 
progress there's been in the last 50 years in terms of our ability to breathe and swim and be out in the world in in comfortable ways. Well, and this is, uh, I'm so glad that this was recommended. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've come on today because I didn't, I didn't know that we had one had these problems and that we got rid of them, which is really encouraging, right? Like, yeah, it really <laughs> I, is. I didn't know, like, I knew that the Thames had caught on fire. I never knew that there was a river in Ohio that caught on fire. That's the Cuyahoga. Yes, yeah. that's. Uh, and so this is really fascinating. Thank you. Um, what? So what can we what can uh, what can people do to help with this? And what are where are sources that they can go to learn more about this? Yeah. So so in terms of 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 thinking about environmental problems in both physical and social ways, which I think is super important, right? I think mm. that's the big picture of like what we have to do if we're going to fix things. Um, there are a whole, whole, whole bunch of folks that you can look at. So, you know, one of the things that I have been, one area that I've been taking enormous inspiration from uh, has been indigenous approaches mm. to the environment that really focus on kind of questions of relationality and justice. So. I would think about Rachel Kimmerer's braiding sweetgrass. Um, I would think about um, work by Kyle White, W-H-Y-T-E, who I think is really amazing. I would think about Max Liberon's book, um, Pollution is Colonialism, that's talking about water plastics um, in relation to indigenous frameworks. I would think about um, Candace Fujikane's book, Mapping Abundance, that um, I find really inspiring that's looking at uh, uh, indigenous environmental practices in Hawaii, right? There's just, there are a bunch of, to me, there are a bunch of examples of ways to bring together our concerns about equity and social justice with our concerns for the environment, you know, so that when we tackle climate change, we don't say, well, gee, it's okay if we do terrible things to this community because, you know, we got to, they're in the path of climate change. We have to move them. We can't stop and consult them or think about their wishes or where they'd want to be. We just got to get them out of the way, right? Or you can imagine other ways of addressing climate change, which also could have very unjust impacts. So trying to think about like, how do we do both together? I think that's, that's what we all need to be thinking about locally. Yeah, yeah, the billionaires are not going to be worried if they lose one of their houses to a rising ocean, right? So it, the people who are going to be the people who have, uh, again, uh, people who do not have means are the ones who will be most affected by climate change, by these local forms of pollution. Um, and I, I say local forms of pollution, like the dead zone in, in the Gulf uh, is, sounds tremendously big. Uh, is there any idea how big that is? You know, I don't know that off the top of my head, um, which is a little embarrassing, but it's actually pretty easy to find on the web. If you I, look sorry, up the I area. have to know. <laughs> All right. Uh, they, it's, I think it's one of those things that they measure in relation to Rhode Island. Yes. 20 to 20. Uh, so 2021, 6,334 square miles. So I'm, that's a very specific number. Not surprised you didn't have that off the top of your head, but that's, <laughs> oy, that's huge. Right. It's huge. The um, is there anything we can do specifically about that? You know, I mean, there's a lot of different uh, scenarios you've mentioned, but uh, what would it take to fix that? Would it take like fixing basically the entire Mississippi? 
<laughs> it would it would take doing a whole lot of work outside of the channel of the Mississippi to to work on what comes in. Um, so it would take really getting serious about preventing the flow of excess nutrients off farm fields. Mm. And then but then there's also um, what get, you know, kind of what we call legacy pollution of things that got washed into the river that are still there. Right. So particularly phosphorus is something that tends to instead of dissolving it, it attaches itself to soil particles called absorbing. So the phosphorus is moving slowly down the river as the soil particles attached to moves. So, you know, what that means is that dealing, we, we can't just stop new inflows in and say, great, we're good. We also have to deal with the stuff that's in the channel already. And that's complicated. Um, and <laughs> yes. not something that I know very much about, yeah. but I feel like, I feel like it's going to take some kind of uh, federal or state cooperation to really tackle it because what's been happening is a lot of voluntary measures, um, which just haven't been enough to really move the needle on the problem, which is too bad. Cause I, you know, I think voluntary is great. Um, but in this case, I think we're going to need some coordination to make a dent in the problem. Well, when you're talking about this, the, the size of this, and, and I can't remember how big I said it was three or 6,000 square feet. Um, 6,000 square miles. Square, square miles. <laughs> I say feet. <laughs> You did. I did. Which which imagines, you know, a nice, large house. Yes. But no. No, no, it's miles. I I misspoke. Um, So what would you, uh, what is the most practical thing an everyday uh, average person can do to help with this? Because obviously, Mm. like, go ahead. No, no. I mean, so, so I have a perhaps unpopular view, which is that our individual actions are important for our own kind of moral well-being, but that they aren't going to solve the problem. I really think that this is this is going to take lots of of uh, writing to our elected officials, of encouraging solutions that come at a higher level, because frankly, neither you nor I has the possibility to change how environmental practices in this nation and in the world work, right? So like climate change, I can eat less meat, I can fly less, that is a drop in the bucket. Right. Um, it's still important to me because I want to feel that I am not contributing myself. But but I'm clear that the the changes that I the impact where I have the places where I have the most impact, sorry, I'm, my words are failing me. The places where I have the most impact are where I work with others and organize to try to change the way we do things not just the way I do things. Yeah. So, but I mean, there is something, um, you know, I don't think we're completely in an autocracy yet, right? Like the, like if you, if you write to your congressman, that sort of thing can make a difference. Um, Especially if lots of us do. Yes. Oh, you're right. Right. It's not like, uh, let me tell you, I have tremendous sway with, you know, the president. No, um, <laughs> not going to happen. Like that. Yes, exactly. Um, so. Uh, again, thank you for your time. If you could leave one last thing for everyone listening, what would that be? I think it would be that there is, there is a path forward, right? I just really don't think that we need to be, um, uh, uh, have a sense of doom about the world in front of us, but the way that we 
prevent that is by getting off our behinds and working together to change it. Mm. So I really feel like we can do this, but we got to do it. We can't just sit there and hope someone else does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's always uh, a great call to action, right? Like um, believing, having the optimism that tomorrow will be better because we work at it, not just because we're like, well, I hope it's better. (laughs) You know, Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, It's been a real pleasure. Pleasure talking with you. An apology to our listeners. When I invited Dr. Lave, I missed the fact that she had just published Streams of Revenue, the Restoration Economy and the Ecosystems it Creates, which she co-wrote along with Dr. Martin Doyle. If you are interested, that's of course a great place to start. It is written for the lay person. So please check it out.